You're listening to Plenary Session. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Christopher Booth, who's Professor of Medicine at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Dr. Booth did his undergraduate in Kingston, Ontario, and he went on to do his medical training in University of Toronto and Princess Margaret. Uh, he went back to Kingston, did some work in the clinical trials group and in health services research, and I guess I would say I think I read a paper by Chris Booth in circa 2012. I was a fellow in medical oncology and I had just learned what progression-free survival was. I started to think to myself, is this endpoint in and of itself, you know, something that matters or is it kind of like a stand-in, surrogate endpoint? And that year, I think, you had published in the JCL, progression-free survival, meaningful or simply measurable? And I think in the last six years, so six, seven years, Every time I think about a topic, be it global health, cost of drugs, the value they provide, how we should use real world evidence, and what are the things we're chasing in oncology and what really matters, I find that Christopher Booth has done some of the most important and influential work in the topic. Uh, but it's my pleasure to, to invite Dr. Booth out here to give a lecture on these topics. Let's, uh, let's welcome Dr. Booth for this talk. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, do us a favor and recommend it to a friend. Plenary Session wants to grow its audience and the best way to do so is to get a personal recommendation from someone you know or trust. So recommend it to someone and have them check out an episode. Also, consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com allows you to support artists or podcasts that you appreciate. And if you like this podcast, that's a great way to show your support. Finally, if you haven't yet gone onto the iTunes store and written us a review, we greatly appreciate it. Tell us what you think about this podcast and give us five stars if we've earned it. Thanks, Vinay. Uh, good morning. Thanks for inviting me out here. Um, so this is my first time to Portland, and I've heard for years it's uh, a town of, of beauty and hipsters, and so, so far I've been reassured that uh, its reputation is, is well-deserved. Um, so as Vinay said, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the work we do in our program, which is kind of the intersection of value in cancer care real-world data to understand how systems can give the best care possible to patients and how this fits into the broader global oncology space. So this is where I come from, uh, Queen's University, which is um, one of Canada's older universities on the shores of Lake Ontario. And um, I went to medical school there and then trained in Toronto but came back because at Queen's is based the, uh, the NCI Canada, the Clinical Trials Group, Canada's Cooperative Trials Unit. And so when I went there, I was a research fellow working with people like Elizabeth Eisenhower and Joe Pater. And then actually during my early uh, research training, began to morph from trials into health services research. But it's a place where we combined uh, high-end academic medicine with, uh, with windsurfing and sailing. It has spectacular wind. And I wanted to give you a taste of kind of Canadian culture. So this is just a work scene of, of a tumor board in Canada. And, and as you can see, um, there's, uh, th these guys would be called hosers in Canada. So a hoser is someone that looks like this and would say things like, hey, you want to have a couple of beers and go watch the hockey game, eh? And um, I've been told actually there's a lot of people in Portland that wear plaids. So we might find s some hosers uh, amidst us uh, later this morning. I have no relationships um, with, with pharma. And in fact, for the trainees, we have a paper coming out later this week in the BMJ that I wrote with one of my earliest mentors, Alan Detsky. The original title, which, um, changing your disclosure slide from none to some, the editors have just changed, and now it's something like, how to maintain boundaries with pharma after you've tasted an $80 hamburger. So you'll have to read the paper to, to hear the story behind that. 
So as mentioned, we're going to talk about um, what I see currently as a crisis in the value of cancer care that we deliver to our patients, uh, to talk about how real-world data can allow us to understand how systems and providers can deliver care that's meaningful to patients, and then along the way to talk a little bit about uh, my foray into global oncology. So this is where my interest in value started. I was um, a medical oncology trainee at Princess Margaret Hospital. I was in breast clinic with Dr. Ian Tannock, who I'm sure many of you have heard of and know. Um, and I presented a case uh, to Dr. Tannock, and my recommendation was, uh, you know, he, this, this patient uh, should start a course of adjuvant and astrazole. This is right around the time that the ATAC trial had been published. And Dr. Tannock looked at me and said, um, well, why anastrozole? Why not tamoxifen? And I was kind of surprised. I said, Dr. Tannock, haven't you read the journals? Anastrozole is far better than tamoxifen. And he shook his head and he said, young oncologists are increasingly impressed with smaller and smaller benefits. I said, well, Dr. Tannock, do you have any evidence to back that up? He said, no, but you're going to find it. So this started an 18-month saga where Dave Cheskon, who was a medical student at the time, who is now a staff physician at Princess Margaret, and I, reviewed all published randomized trials of systemic therapy in the three major diseases in the big journals of that era. We did a 30-year historical look, uh, including over 300 RCTs with 170,000 patients. This is an updated publication that one of my fellows did a few years later that illustrates some of the main trends. And you can see that there was a um, market increase in the number of patients on trial. So in the early days, there was 100 or 200 patients in the trial, and now it's up to 700, 800, 1,000. And you can see the other curve that went up markedly is the proportion of trials funded by industry, which has obviously changed drastically in the last 30 years. This is the slide that shows that Dr. Tannock was right and young resident Booth was wrong. So as you can see, the top um, data point shows the uh, relative difference between old drug and new drug in each decade over time. And you can see, if anything, over time, the effect size decreased, but it certainly did not increase. Not surprisingly, given what we mentioned earlier about sample size, the proportion of trials with a p-value with many zeros behind it went up. And medical oncologists are simple when it comes to p-value. The more zeros behind it, the more excited we get. And then when we graded in a blinded way author's endorsement, we saw that um, authors of modern trials, despite no increase in effect size, were much more likely to strongly endorse their treatment as the new standard of care. And the other thing we noticed, which I mentioned, is that there's a massive shift towards surrogate endpoints. So this is a classic slide from um, Dr. Tannock, who's one of my formative mentors. And he asked this question, what should we call an agent that increases PFS, has no effect on survival, and adds toxicity? Sounds familiar, right? Most issues of JCO have an agent that sounds like this. And what Dr. Tannock said is the default is we should call this harmful. And so this gets to the issue of value and what matters to patients, which is living longer and living better lives. And everything else is a surrogate, and if it's not been validated, we need to think very carefully about why it's being used. A few more slides just to illustrate the concept of value. This is a seminal paper by Tito Fo and colleagues where they looked at 71 FDA-approved drugs over 12 years, and this is really sobering data. I mean, it was published in an otolaryngology journal because it was an invited lecture he gave, but the median gain, two months of survival and two and a half months of progression-free survival. And this is not what you see on the front page of the newspapers after ASCO. The, 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 the media and the public perception is very different from the reality on the ground. Into this value space, um, ASCO and ESMO both came up with value frameworks, which represented a lot of work and were actually huge advances to try to quantify um, the value that our new therapies offer to patients. 
And so they're, they're iterative um, um, programs that require uh, you know, constant updating and, and revision, but they do represent major advances. So once these came out, ideally, I think that the, the, the game plan was that these would inform the design and approval of future drugs, but while we wait for those future drugs to develop, our group and a number of others applied these scales to drugs that we already use. And so this was work um, that actually started during my sabbatical in India. First author is Joey Del Paggio, who was a trainee with us at Queen's and is on practice, and Bizu Azariah was one of the fellows in Kerala, where we took the ESMO and ASCO framework and we applied them to a cohort of modern trials. We chose breast, lung, colorectal, and pancreas cancer in the modern era. We had about 300 RCTs, and about half of them were quote-unquote positive, so it tells you the principle of equipoise is, is alive and well. But half of trials, the, the, the new treatment was statistically better than the old one. So when we took those so-called positive trials and we applied the ESMO <laughs> framework to it, it became apparent that only 31% of these statistically positive trials had a therapeutic benefit that would meet ESMO's definition of clinically meaningful. You can debate their definition, but I think many of us would say, if anything, it's on the lower end. But in any case, only that represents only 15, 1-5% of all published RCTs identify a therapeutic benefit that many would consider meaningful. When we delved deeper into the design, it became apparent that the vast majority of trials are overpowered. They're powered to detect treatment benefits that are far smaller than what would be considered clinically meaningful. So this gets to an issue of efficiency of how we use our most valuable resource in research, which is patients going on clinical trials. This is a follow-up paper um, that uh, we did to compare the ASCO and ESMO framework. But I think the reason the Lancet Oncology was most interested in this was the back of the envelope economic analysis, which um, we asked the question, uh, as most things we do in life, if you pay more for something, you would hope it's a better product, better quality, faster car, better house, nicer meal. And we found that that association does not hold true in cancer drugs. There's no association. In fact, I'm not a mathematician, but my sense is the curve's going in the wrong direction. And we see actually that the drugs that are most expensive offer the smallest benefits to our patients. There's been a number of groups. This is a paper by Courtney Davis and A.J. Agarwal in London, and uh, similar groups in North America have applied the framework to FDA-approved drugs and EMA-approved drugs and found very sobering results. These are drugs that have been deemed safe and effective and now mainstream practice, and depending on the series you read, only 10 to 40% of these drugs will meet ESMO's definition of clinically meaningful. So having set the stage that we have a, a problem with value in cancer care, I just want to speak a little bit about what health services research and systems thinking can, um, can offer as we try to move our systems towards care that provides meaningful benefit to our patients. And this was um, my third mentor uh, in my career, <coughs> Bill McKillop. Bill McKillop is a Scotsman, a fiery radiation oncologist uh, who was at Queen's, formerly at University of Edinburgh McGill and just retired a year ago. But Bill, in the early 90s, was way ahead of his time thinking about how to use real-world data. And in the early 90s, he wrote a letter. I typed it on a piece of paper, sent it off to the Cancer Centers of Ontario, and said, will you send me your data? And they did. They mailed tapes. And all of Ontario's cancer data flowed to Queen's. And so he started using registry linked to real-world data in the early 90s to describe patterns of care and outcomes. And in this lecture he gave to the Royal College in 1994, he was actually way ahead of his time. You know, he's one of the forefathers of health services research. I'm going to paraphrase. In the long term, the biological and technological advances of today will have an influence on the practice of oncology, but the pace of change is such that I doubt if it will be possible to achieve more for patients with cancer in 2010 
than can be achieved now with the best of care available in 1994. We fall so far short of achieving now what is achievable that there is scope for us to improve the outcome of cancer in the short term by making better use of available knowledge and technology today. And fast forwarding a couple decades and we see time and time again that there's a big gap between what we know and what we do. So this is an older paper now but still a seminal piece of work in the New England Journal by McGlynn and colleagues where they did a random audit, um, telephone and chart review of 13,000 US adults and they measured basic elements of care, not high-end tertiary quaternary care, but basic things that we're all taught in medical school that we know save lives. If someone's had a TIA, are they on an antiplatelet? If someone has diabetes, are they on an ACE inhibitor? If someone has asthma, do they got bronchodilator, et cetera? And what they found is that only half of these basic recommendations were being followed in routine practice. And again, so their conclusion is striking. The deficits we've identified in the adherence to recommended processes of basic care pose serious threats to the health of the American public. I can tell you Canadians would look at this and say, oh, well, we have universal health care. This isn't a problem in our country. But I'll, I'll reassure you, this is a problem everywhere. Data from Canada, Australia, and the UK show the same thing. Time and time again, there's a gap between evidence and practice. Wolf and Johnson are academic family physicians in Virginia, and they followed up on this concept with, I think, a very provocative um, paradigm. They call the break-even point when medical advances are less important than improving the fidelity with which they are delivered. Society invests billions of dollars in the development of new drugs and technologies, but comparatively little in the fidelity of healthcare, that is improving systems to ensure the delivery of care to all patients in need. This huge investment in technological innovations that only modestly improve efficacy by consuming resources needed for improved delivery of care may cost more lives than it saves. So this gets to the idea of health services research, which really is, is a, an area of inquiry that seeks to ensure that what we learn from basic and clinical biomedical research is optimally deployed so the society and the population benefits. And the framework that many of us work with in this space is the quality of care framework and the WHO um, elements, which are care should be effective, accessible, equitable, efficient, patient-centered, and safe. So as Vinay mentioned, I initially was um, a research fellow in trials methodology, and, and I continue to do a fair bit in clinical trials, but most of my focus now is in health services research. And this transition happened during kind of my late research training, early faculty career. And so just at the beginning of this, so over a decade ago, Bill McKilp and I had an opportunity to really think about this and <coughs> propose that population-based outcome studies really allow society to get an idea about our, our therapeutic um, innovation and investments translating to benefit in the real world. So real-world data can allow us to ask several important questions. Do physicians change practice after publication of a pivotal trial? Is there a gap between evidence and practice? When care is delivered, are there gaps in the accessibility or quality of care? What about the question, are the benefits and toxicities of therapies in the real world as expected? Is there a gap between efficacy, the performance of a therapeutic agent under ideal circumstances, and effectiveness, its benefit in routine care? And what about all the patients we see every day in Portland, in Kingston, in Mumbai, and in France that look nothing like the patients that go on clinical trials? We have a total lack of information on many of these patients, and so real-world data can inform practice and care of these patients. So I've been doing this now for, for long enough that I've seen the pendulum swing back and forth twice. So this paper Dr. Tanik and I wrote in an era, 2014, where there was a lot of pushback and the trialists were saying the health services people don't know what they're doing. The health services people were saying your trials are you know, looking for meaningless gains. 
and, and Dr. Tannock, who's a trialist, and I thought that, you know, this is, this is an artificial dichotomy. Randomized controlled trials remain the gold standard and will forever remain the gold standard for establishing efficacy of new cancer therapies. But we need kind of a partnership in the evolution of what we know, which is that after an RCT shows something works, we need to follow up in the real world to ensure it's optimally deployed and the benefits are as expected. So briefly, as we know, RCTs have excellent internal validity, largely on the basis of randomization, but their external validity or generalizability is lacking. I tell my trainees that to, to be a patient on a cancer clinical trial, one has to be an Olympian for cancer. They're younger, fitter, more affluent, motivated. So these Olympic patients are then treated by Olympic doctors and Olympic nurses in Olympic systems. The paper comes out in a major journal, and then we go back to our clinics, and regular doctors like Dr. Prasad and Dr. Booth, average doctors with average patients and average systems now need to deploy that. So there's a lot of uncertainty about whether treatment can be delivered in a safe and effective way. So this is a piece Bill and I just published. This is actually the last piece I wrote with him um, before he retired. And it really represents kind of everything he taught me in 10 years. But just briefly, there's many things that we can do with real world data. The current environment is that all the attention is on comparative effectiveness. Can we use real world data to skip randomized trials and just study drug A versus drug B? And that's actually the use of real world data that is the most fraught with problems and bias and is probably on the bottom of the list of 20 other important things that we can do. So this is a conceptual framework about system change. In real world data, you can <coughs> identify performers of indicate, uh, indicators of performance, measure performance, understand gaps in performance, put in an intervention, and then continuously measure as we try to drive quality improvement. And so this is, this is a busy table, but it's really just to illustrate that real-world data can tell us about patients. It can tell us about the burden of disease, what these patients look like, what their symptom burden is. It can tell us about treatment, access to care. Is there underutilization of care, overutilization, or misutilization? can tell us about referral patterns. Where is the system failing? We can learn about waiting times, a number of other elements of accessibility. We can learn about quality of care. Is care being delivered concordant with guidelines? Is there inappropriate abandonment of care, which is a major issue in low and middle income countries for children with cancer? And then about outcomes. We can learn about rare diseases, rare patients, and rare outcomes that are not commonly studied or reported in clinical trials of Olympians. We can do an outcomes reality check. Five-year survival, median survival is X in randomized trials. What, what is it in the real world? What should we be telling our patients? Systems of care, cancer economics, and then, of course, comparative effectiveness. And I'll speak about this towards the end of my talk. So we're going to spend the next um, little while going through just some examples of work that we've done in Canada, as well as work we've done in India that I think um, hopefully give an idea of how we can seek value in the real world. So starting with accessibility, I'll tell you the story of cancer stage. Before we get there, this is a very busy slide, um, and, and I apologize for that, but it's done in somewhat on purpose because real-world data is incredibly messy. It is fraught with um, redundancies, duplications, errors, miscoding, and something that people don't pay enough attention to is the quality of the data. Is it being checked? Is it a passive registry, an active registry? And it's often glossed over, and I can tell you, having worked with this data for, for a decade, there are numerous, numerous pitfalls. Um, that you can make very fatal mistakes with and have misleading results if one is not careful. And we're also sometimes, uh, very often, limited by the fact that we're missing important information. So our, our unit, we start with, uh, our unit's called CCE, Cancer Care and Epidemiology. We start with the Ontario 
Cancer Registry. And so again, Ontario is Canada's largest province, a population of 14 million people. It's a single-payer universal health care system, which greatly facilitates this type of research because we have data on everyone, rich, poor, old, young, rural, urban, academic, community environments. So we start with the registry that gives us the nuts and bolts on every patient with cancer in Ontario. And on top of that, we can patch, we have radiotherapy records from every center in Ontario, the chemotherapy records, records of their surgical procedures, hospitalizations. We have an ecologic measure of socioeconomic status from their neighborhood, median income from the census. And then we have oh, a physician billing data from the Ministry of Health that allows us to track referrals through the system. The one thing that's lacking from almost every registry is a number of things, including important variables like performance status and patient preferences. But from a biologic point of view, most registries, including Ontario, lack data on the extent of disease and biologic indices of disease severity. So the cohorts that I've assembled in, in the last decade have all been curative intense solid tumor cohorts, and we actually go after the path reports. And we get like thousands and thousands of hemicolectomy, cystectomy path reports, and for several years torture a team of medical students and residents to build this archive of rich path data. So the socioeconomic status story. So this came out of work. Um, so Bill in the 1990s published a paper in JCO that uh, was very upsetting to Canadians because it showed that despite having a universal health care system, there was big gradients in survival across socioeconomic groups. At the time, it was unknown what was driving this, and people wondered, <coughs> is it stage of disease? One can imagine people from more impoverished backgrounds would present with more advanced disease. But we didn't have stage day at the population level in the 90s. So when I rolled around in about 2008, um, we actually had some stage data. And so Bill said, let's replicate this study to ask two questions. Number one, in the modern era, in a universal healthcare system, is there differences in outcome across socioeconomic groups? And number two, if there are differences, are they explained by differences in stage of disease? So we linked um, cases from the Ontario Cancer Registry to census, and we had a stage file from Cancer Care Ontario. And this is what we found. Um, you can see that both for breast and colon cancer, we have for other uh, diseases as well. So SES1 is the poorest patients, SES5 is the most affluent patients. And you can see for both breast and colon, important gradients with a stepwise biologic dose response for both overall survival and cancer-specific survival. One would expect the overall survival would be driven perhaps by diabetes, cardiovascular disease, smoking, et cetera. But when we look at cancer-specific survival, again, these are, these are meaningful and real differences. If we had a $100,000 monoclonal antibody that improved survival by 5%, it would be an oral presentation at our major meeting and would be published in a big journal. And th these, these are gaps here that require us to uh, understand and try to remedy. To answer question number two, while we saw some very small differences, so these are the most affluent communities who are slightly more likely to have stage one disease and slightly less likely to have stage four, these were small differences that did not account for the observed difference in survival. So it remains unclear what was driving the difference in survival. Is it disease biology? Is it access to care? Is it comorbidity we can't measure? Is it patient preferences? So we're now going to move south of the equator. So as, as I mentioned, in 2016, I had the opportunity to spend a three-month sabbatical in Kerala. And I had, um, I had an interest in, in global health as a medical student and spent some time in South America. But this was the era, at least my naive thinking, that if I didn't go into infectious disease, I wouldn't be able to do global health. So I then became obsessed with full fox and solid tumor medicine and didn't think that I would be able to offer anything global health. And I had an opportunity um, to speak at the World Oncology Forum in Lugano, I guess it was probably 2014. 
And at this meeting were a number of people from the World Health Organization and also colleagues from India. And I, I gave a talk about the work we do in Ontario. And at that time, these light bulbs went off in my own mind, realizing that the issues of access and quality of care and system performance, while they are highly relevant in, in where we work, high-income countries, they're actually the fundamental issue in these emerging cancer systems. So this led to a remarkable life experience and invitation to spend three months at the Regional Cancer Center in Trivandrum. And so this is where I spent my academic time, but it was, it was a grand uh, adventure for the whole family. So we've got four kids, and they were, you know, they're still young, but they were very, very young then. And so we packed up our family and moved to Kerala for three months, which was a remarkable family experience, full of adventures for the children and their parents. Um, these are my colleagues at the Regional Cancer Center Trivandrum. I'm the guy in the back, in case you can't see me. Um, so Dr. Ali Emma Matthew is my primary collaborator and colleague. She's a professor uh, and head of biostatistics and epidemiology. So the Regional Cancer Center in Trivandrum has a uh, remarkable history of working with cancer registry data. They've got many trained epidemiologists there, and they're very productive. And they have a cohort of outstanding clinicians. And the clinicians are incredibly skilled, dedicated physicians and surgeons, but they are run off their feet with clinical work. And while they have collaborated in the past, um, th there was a, an institutional goal to bring those two worlds together. And that's kind of where I filled the niche, to try to use the EP data and skill sets there to address questions that were clinically meaningful and of uh, policy irrelevance for a system. And it's led to a very fruitful collaboration. I now spend about half of my academic time on India-related projects. I go back and forth about twice a year. So just briefly, from a global oncology, uh, uh, global oncology in Indian, uh, speci India specifically is a land in a field of many paradoxes. And so uh, the, the cartoon at the top illustrates one of the paradoxes, which is that uh, the incident caseload in low income countries is lower compared to the mortality. So there's a much higher mortality rate. And that's largely driven by stage of disease. And that, that was one of the great tragedies. I would spend in India the mornings in clinic as an observer, really just learning and talking to patients, understanding their journey. And then the afternoon, I'd be in the epidemiology unit. And it was just an overwhelming number of advanced disease cases. Despite this, we see that you know, two-thirds of the global deaths are in low and middle-income countries, but we spend only 5% of our cancer budget in these countries. And when one considers the crisis in value we have in our current system, it just, I, th I think it gives us as a community really a moral imperative to start thinking about how we can benefit patients, both in our practices in Canada and the United States, but also patients globally. So this is just to highlight that the partners I have um, in India. So I work very closely with, of course, my colleagues at the Regional Cancer Center in Trivandrum, with some very close friends of the Tata Memorial Hospital and their national network called the NCG. And then Dr. Raja Gopal, who is one of the leading thinkers in palliative care at Pallium India, also based in Trivandrum. And so we're going to look at some Ontario work as well as some India work that involves these colleagues and friends. So when I went on my first visit to India, kind of as a fact-finding mission before we moved there, I gave grand rounds. And when I met with my colleagues there, I asked, you know, what kinds of projects would you be interested in doing? And Dr. Matthew was very interested in replicating our socioeconomic status paper in the context of Kerala. So that was the first paper um, that we've done. It's just coming out soon in the journal Global Oncology. The next piece of work um, related from a systems point of view to palliative care. And again, this was, I, I think, the, gr the greatest tragedy um, that I observed in my time in Kerala is sitting in clinic in the morning and recognizing these patients who would travel 12 hours by overnight train. They would come in and see the, the, the physician and they would have stage four disease and they likely would not receive palliative therapy. Maybe they would, but often they wouldn't because they just uh, too much travel and logistics involved. 
And then they would take the train back to their village and many of them would not have palliative care and they would die very difficult deaths, whereas for a few rupees a day, if they could be connected to a palliative care group and have access to opioids, they could have quality end-of-life care. And Kerala is actually the leader in India, mostly because of Dr. Raja Gopal, um, but there's still big gaps in, in uh, delivery of palliative care for a number of reasons. And so you know, we all know that, again, there's, there's two opioid epidemics. We, uh, in Oregon and Ontario, live in one epidemic, but the rest of the world has the other epidemic. This is just a figure from the group at Wisconsin to show that if you look at the per capita consumption uh, by year of uh, morphine equivalents, you know, Canada and the U.S. were off the charts, 600, 700 you know, milligrams per person. That's a completely a different, different story than the rest of the world. You can see the global mean here is 6 milligrams per person. That includes about 100 countries with zero. So what's the optimal rate? We don't know, but our, our peer countries in northern and western Europe, um, the UK, Switzerland, Scandinavia, Germany, where they have good palliative care and they don't really have the opioid epidemic, they sit at around 100 to 200 milligrams per person per year. So that's probably where, where the sweet spot is. And you can see uh, countries in sub-Saharan Africa and India are just off the chart. India, 0.3 milligrams per person per year. And you just think of the unmet need and the unnecessary suffering that could be alleviated systems to put palliative care in place and a few rupees for morphine per day. So Raj Gopal, fortunately in Kerala, they had very strict record keeping of where the opioids went. So we used that to do a policy level piece looking at delivery of, um, of opioids, recognizing this was only one element of good palliative care, but it's one that we can measure. So we looked at distribution by hospital, by district and time across Kerala, and we used the common metric of morphine milligrams per capita. And we looked at who was providing palliative care. So we saw some encouraging trends in Kerala. The morphine consumption as a metric of palliative care access was going up. But you can still see, look at this, 1.5 milligrams. You know, the optimal rate is maybe 100 or 200. rest of India is 0.3. So Kerala is way ahead of the rest of India. But as Dr. Rajagopal likes to say, he's like, we still have a lot of work to do. We cannot rest on our laurels. And a you know, disturbing trend was massive regional variation depending on where you live, huge differences in access to, to palliative care. And the fact that most palliative care actually in many parts of the world is delivered by volunteer community-led NGOs. And um, again, this has policy relevance because we, could, we did a GIS map to show the districts where there was low utilization of opioids as a way to encourage new nurse-led models, mobile van clinics, et cetera, to improve access to care. So quality of care, um, we talk about bladder cancer and then just choosing wisely India. Uh, so again, real world day, we talked about understanding patients. We talked about accessibility. Now we're talking about quality of care. So just briefly, I know um, that Vinay and other people have probably forgotten how you treat bladder cancer. So muscle invasive bladder cancer, you either cut it out with an operation or you give radiation. Um, obviously has two very different outcomes for the patient. Never been tested in a head-to-head -head RCT. Surgical series, um, that, and the data we were taught in training is about half of people are alive at five years. The guidelines say, yeah, you should probably give some neoadjuvant chemotherapy less uh, confident on adjuvant chemotherapy because there's less data. So that's kind of the landscape. So we decided to understand patterns of care and look at outcomes achieved in routine practice. We linked the data sets I showed earlier. We had all curative intent patients with cystectomy or radiotherapy in Ontario over a period of 15 years. And again, we had like 8,000 cystectomy pass reports, which was a lot of fun for the urology residents. So this is um, primary treatment. You can see over time, the bar on the bottom shows the proportion of cases getting surgery. The bar on the top is the proportion getting radiotherapy. And you can see over time, there's a shift away from bladder sparing radiotherapy towards surgery. The radiotherapy cases are much older. This is a big difference at the population level, six years, with more comorbidity. 
And these are the survival curves that one often sees that is used to advocate for a cystectomy over a bladder sparing um, modality. You can see survival, it looks better. And, and again, I'm gonna show you something here that's not level one evidence or randomized trial, but when we pop age and comorbidity into the model, look what happens. This is like the high tech part of the presentation. The curves go from that to that. Do that again, it gets kind of fancy. That to that. So I'm not saying that the outcomes are the same. Um, but the way we see this is that the outcomes are probably not very different and high quality care would allow a patient to meet with both a urologic surgeon and a radiotherapist to make an informed decision about care. The other important point to note is that five year survival is closer to 30% in the real world. And this has been replicated in the UK and Scandinavia as well. We looked at volumes analysis. This is something again you can't do with clinical trials where we classified providers, either hospitals or surgeons, into low volume quartile, the high volume quartile. So as a non-surgeon, the first thing I was amazed to see is that half of cystectomies done in Ontario are done by a surgeon does one or two cases per year, you know, very, very low volume. And again, you can see a striking difference in both post-operative mortality and cancer-specific survival across providers. Both hospital and surgeon volume matters. <coughs> and again, a biologic dose response, and these are not trivial effect sizes. Again, this would be a $200,000 immunotherapy drug with a plenary session at our Ameri uh, the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting. This is the chemotherapy piece. Remember guidelines say use neoadjuvant, which is the blue bars, and you can see for many years it was 5% of cases getting neoadjuvant and 30% getting adjuvant. You can see over time, with diffusion of knowledge and some KT efforts we've done in Ontario, perioperative chemotherapy utilization has increased. This is the tricky part. It, it's relatively straightforward to describe gaps in care at the system level, but to try to understand them and close them is much, much harder. So this was one of the more painful studies I've done at my foray into knowledge translation, which is an area of mixed methodology and much more uh, complex than the world I'm used to. But what we did was uh, interviewed and surveyed providers, and it became very apparent that practice patterns are largely driven by the belief system and the culture of the institution. So having multidisciplinary care, processes of care, and local champions for high quality care really drive these differences that we see across providers. So that was quality of care uh, for bladder cancer in Ontario. Um, quality of care in India, this is one of the other paradoxes of living in India, is when I moved there, I thought, perhaps naively, but I think most people would share this impression, is that the biggest issue, or the only issue, would be underutilization, lack of access to care, and that really does remain the most um, pressing issue in India. However, uh, I, I was really dismayed when I was there to see this par parallel epidemic of overutilization, primarily in a completely unregulated private system. Where, and these were not wealthy patients. These were patients who were traveling by train for 20 hours, they were selling their family farm, or they were going to money lenders and putting their children in debt for generations so they could afford for a PET scan to be done every month on their palliative chemotherapy to monitor response. I'm not exaggerating, this is actually happening. So a couple of years ago, I was involved in Choosing Wisely Canada, and a couple of years ago I proposed to my Indian colleagues, let's do the first Choosing Wisely outside of a high-income country. And they got very excited and we did it. We went through the Choosing Wisely process with the working group and the Delphi approach. And uh, we were very excited, you know, two years later, we just were in India uh, last month for the national meeting, and the Lancet Oncology did, you know, an important release the night of the national meeting for Choosing Wisely India, the top 10 recommendations for high quality care. And on here, you'll see there's some that, were, uh, that mirror the Choosing Wisely US and Choosing Wisely Canada, such as 
Do not delay palliative care referral just because someone's on active therapy. Don't give palliative systemic therapy to poor performance status patients, et cetera, et cetera. But there is some homegrown Indian ones, such as do not do routine PET scans to monitor response to palliative chemotherapy. Um, and do not routinely admit patients with incurable cancer to the intensive care unit unless they have a reversible cause. So these are kind of problems that we're seeing in India. And when we talked about this at the national meeting last month, the important point we all made was, look, this is just the starting point to come with the framework. We now need to put into practice and use real world data to look at concordance with these recommendations. So the last few minutes, I'm going to talk about outcomes, um, lung cancer story, testes cancer, and then a few minutes just on some cautionary tales. So this was my first uh, kind of major operating grant um, from our CIHR. And this was a study I did uh, with some experienced investigators to look at uptake of adjuvant chemotherapy for lung cancer. So in 2004, treatment changed on the basis of a few trials, including one of the Canadian trials, BR10, um, with cisplatin-based doublet therapy. And we were interested to see, has practice changed in Ontario? And when you give this potentially toxic therapy to real patients in the real world, what are the outcomes? So we used data sources I showed earlier to identify all surgical cases before and after 2004. This was the, the methodologic framework we used. So you can imagine, and this is, this is an imperfect uh, analogy, but you can imagine the patients in some ways have been randomized by nature to have their lung cancer treated in 2003 or 2005. And one has to be careful with this to show that other systems and treatments and disease biologic processes do not change over time. But in most cases, over a few years, they do not. Um, and so we imagine before 2004, most patients would be the red patients here getting surgery alone. A few people will get some chemo. Maybe they're on a trial protocol. Maybe the doctor was, was you know, practicing strange medicine. And we thought afterwards, more people will get chemotherapy, but not everyone. And it would obviously be problematic to compare the outcome here of the red people versus the green people, because for obvious reasons with bias and confounding. But we hypothesize that if one compares the outcome of all surgical cases before and after, and the only thing that changes is the uptake of a new therapy, one can begin to learn about the effect of the population level, and that's what we did. And it's important to remember that we would expect a dilution effect because not everyone would be getting the treatment. So the pivotal trial showed an improvement in long-term survival of 12 to 15%. So this is what we found. So it was reassuring Canadian oncologists read journals and go to meetings, so we saw an uptake of therapy, but look, it peaked at 35%. What the optimal rate is, we don't know. It's not 100%, but it's probably higher than 35%. <coughs> and this was a survival curve that was really very gratifying to the lung cancer community that worked for decades on this. And what we showed was that irrespective of whether or not they got chemotherapy, the outcome of all surgical cases improved the population level by 4%. And if you remember, the trial showed an improvement of about 12 to 15%, but we have a dilution factor of 3 because only 35% of people got the therapy. So what we see here is that patients in the real world had the survival benefit exactly as one might have expected based on the clinical trial. And real world data allows you to plot your outcomes. These are the Ontario outcomes to pivotal trials and meta-analysis. And unlike bladder cancer, where we see very poor outcomes in Ontario relative to trials, we see that lung cancer we're doing very well. And actually in, in Ontario, lung cancer care is regionalized at high volume centers. Bladder cancer care is not. That's something we're working on with our health policy uh, leaders to, to address. So this comes to a piece, so, so I've been reading Vinay's work since he was a trainee, and I think this highlights, you know, the, the lung cancer example I just gave is that um, the cycle of evidence should not stop with the publication of the randomized trial. If we're spending tens of millions of dollars to develop a drug and do the fa a phase three study, and then hundreds of millions of dollars to pay 
for these agents, it behooves us as a society and as practitioners to ask the question, well, number, are patients getting the stuff in the real world and does it actually work? And so as when, I, when I wrote about this, overall survival in drug trials is actually a surrogate endpoint for the real world. Every time I read his work, I think, wow, you know, this sounds kind of like similar. And so it makes me wonder if maybe he's a hoser in disguise. And maybe actually we, we share a lot of uh, similar, similar thoughts and maybe our, our dress code as well. Okay, the last example from Canada is testes cancer. Um, so stage one germ cell tumor, uh, most guidelines recommend surveillance, but this comes from data in high volume centers of excellence. We asked the question, the real world, is it happening and is it safe? And we, had, we linked all the path reports and data for cases over a decade in Ontario. 2,600 cases, um, about half were seminoma, or 60% seminoma, 40% non-sem, and most ORCs are done at community hospitals. And what we found here is a remarkable de-escalation of therapy. So this was actually very gratifying to see. So you can see, particularly for seminoma, the non-seminoma surveillance happened in, uh, change happened in the 90s in Ontario, and this, this area here was mostly the seminoma. So you can see a substantial reduction in treatment intensity, and it's actually, it's actually long-term. It's not just like you're deferring therapy until they relapse. You can see here, long-term, there's a marked reduction in the morbidity uh, and treatment exposure. We see that there wasn't really temporal trends in non-seminal. You can see about half of patients now are able to have, these are all comers, all stages, are able to have um, no therapy. And again, this is the opposite survival curve we're used to in, in solid tumor medicine, but this shows that um, in Ontario, a five-year survival of testes cancer is like 98%. We showed here over time, there was no suggestion that with massive de-escalation of therapy, it compromised outcomes. So the last section, just to comment on some, some pitfalls. So the current interest in using real-world data for comparative effectiveness studies and to perhaps supersede the use of a randomized trial is very problematic for a number of reasons, and, and largely driven by the fact that there's lots of selection bias and residual confounding. One can only adjust for things which one can measure and things which one knows, and that's often glossed over. The other important piece is all the missing data, performance status, patient preference, stage of disease, pathologic correlates of outcome. There are a host of issues that make this very, very tricky work. Misclassification bias. I mean, we have an example in our bladder cancer study where the administrative codes, right, the coding clerk in the basement of the hospital, cystectomy, cystoscopy, whatever, sounds the same. And so you can imagine that happens, you know, hundreds of times or a few dozen times, and all of a sudden you've got massive misclassification. Immortal time bias. These are all real problems with real-world data, mostly in use of comparative effectiveness research. All the other examples I gave with access and quality are much less prone to these forms of bias. So we've written about this a little bit in JCO in the last year or two. The first piece was in response to, um, these are all, all coming from the NCDB, a bladder cancer study which showed a huge survival benefit for people with incurable metastatic <laughs> bladder cancer who had a cystectomy. And again, it was fraught with immortal time bias and other problems. And this is dangerous because it's published in a big journal. Um, most clinicians don't have the time or trained to understand the detailed methods and they think, oh, I should start removing people's bladders when they're going to live for six months. Another example was uh, recently in GI cancer. So we know from clinical trials that adjuvant chemotherapy for stage two colon cancer, it's not recommended. If there's a survival benefit, it's like one or 2%. So for some reason, um, investigators with the NCDB looked to find benefit in the real world and found an astounding 18% improvement, absolute improvement in overall survival. 
for adjuvant chemotherapy for stage. So it, it doesn't work in randomized trials, but has a huge benefit in the real world. I mean, obviously, uh, one needs to pause and just think about that. Does it really make sense? And when one gets into the details, there is some issues probably with misclassification, lack of comorbidity data, and immortal time bias. And this paper just came out very recently um, in JCO, which really hit the nail on the head. Uh, they used uh, SEER data sets, NCDB, and they had pairs. So they had real-world data studying two treatments in question, and they found a matching RCT. And what they found is that the ability of real-world data to predict or have agreement with RCTs was no better than flipping a coin. And this should cause huge concern in anyone advocating for real-world data to be used for drug regulatory primary approval. We would propose that randomized trials remain the first step in regulatory approval, and that several years later, there's a feedback loop to ensure that they're delivering benefit and value in the real world. This is a Scottish paper. Again, th this was a very elegant study, actually, that used a number of different methodologic approaches that actually showed that real-world data could replicate the results of RCTs. It was in breast cancer, but what they had here was extremely granular data at the patient level of their prognostic risk scores. So very different than big, big, messy data that has almost no in, in detail about individual disease risk. So again, th 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 there's still ongoing debate here, but we're, it's very premature to forget the RCT. And the last piece, just to comment on some issues in global oncology, so just bringing the concept of value and real-world data together, we're not going to necessarily improve the outcome of our patients in Ontario or Oregon by <coughs> new expensive technologies and therapies. We're going to get the biggest value from a patient quality point of view by focusing on the things that matter to patient, overall survival and quality of life. And this is no more apparent than, um, than anywhere in emerging cancer systems. So this is a piece of work I wrote with Richard Sullivan and Pramesh um, from Tata and the UK respectively and Bishal Gawali, formerly in Boston, who's now uh, moved to Queens. And Bishal actually coined this, the cancer ground shot, going global before going to the moon. And Richard Pramesh and I outlined um, a few shifts that we think are necessary to move systems toward high-value care. The first is to change global mindsets, which sets realistic expectations and stops celebrating low wins and to raise the bar. The second is to focus on the social determinants of health and the people who deliver care to ensure that no matter where one lives, in a high-income country or a low-income country, they have access to high-quality care. And the third is to actually put in systems of accountability, to measure and understand system performance, underutilization, overutilization, misutilization, and to really identify how to drive systems towards optimal care. So in closing, Ben Goldacre said this a few years ago, and, and I hope that the, the talk this morning about value and real world and global oncology um, would, would, would uh, support this premise. If you put me in charge of medical research budget, I would cancel all primary research, I would cancel all new trials for just one year, and I would spend the money exclusively on making sure that we make the best possible use of the clinical evidence that we already have. So in summary, um, scientific knowledge and resource allocation determines what is potentially achievable for our patients. But it's access to care, quality of care, and translation of efficacy and effectiveness that determines what is achieved. And if we seek high-value care and we use real-world data in an intelligent way, it'll help us close these gaps and move towards achieving the achievable. Thank you for inviting me to be here.
You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley. <laughs>